WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, you can call us locally at 843-525-1859, 525-1859. We have internet listeners. We broadcast around the world at WAGP.net. And if you're here in the United States and would like to use our toll-free number, the number is 877, and it's the call letters, WAGP. WAGP 980. Either of those numbers will get you through. You can also um, text us or email us here directly here into the studio. The email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line TBL at WAGP.net. And you can send your email and it will pop up on the screen right in front of us this morning. When you call, if you're comfortable, you can go on the air live or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question Uh, to Deb, who's taking the phone calls this morning. As always, Rick, it's great to be here. We're here to answer questions about the Bible or challenges that people are facing in their life or ministry, and they'd like biblical counsel on. Absolutely. And uh, people are calling and uh, emailing us from all over the country. I don't think we've ever gotten one from Cordova, Tennessee, but that's where Emmanuel is writing from. He writes, uh, good morning. Upon reading 1 Timothy 2.9, In what contextual meaning does the verse point to in terms of women being not with braided hair? Is it time-specific? I ask because my wife and I are both black and desire clarification on this subject. Uh, Though I know this is a small thing, we are rather curious about it. Secondly, I desire to know the Word of God explicitly with meaning, understanding, and interpretation as I've come to know you uh, do this through the Search the Scriptures application. How do I go about knowing if I am capable capable so that I'm knowledgeable to spread the gospel in whatever capacity God has set uh, fit for my life. By the way, I would love to attend the Dallas Theological Seminary, but it seems intimidating. I know it's um, uh, it's Ask Dr. Brogy a question, but my heart led me to ask so many because of my admiration for what God sends through you, and I've never met you. Signed, Emmanuel. Well, Emmanuel, we're glad you uh, wrote us today, and let me see if I can respond to your questions. You mentioned the Search the Scriptures app, and some of our listeners are unaware of that. If you go to the App Store, type in Search the Scriptures, uh, it will bring you up to our radio app, and you can download any of the messages, and people are using that as a tool to grow further in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, your first question is in reference here to 1 Timothy 2.9. Let me read the text, because not everyone has the advantage of a Bible in front of them. Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. 
Now, there have certainly been Christians in the history of the church and maybe more recently in the last century or so that have taken this verse as a, a prohibition for women wearing jewelry or nice dresses or even braiding the hair. And they really miss the meaning of the verse and the context when they come up with that kind of decision. If you look at First Timothy here, chapter 2, he is uh, describing the role of men and women in the local assembly, things they should do and things they shouldn't do. And I think um, what Paul is saying here is often mistaken. Uh, some people would say, well, it's time bound. I don't think it's any more time bound than what he has said in verse 12 when uh, he commands, I do not want a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because he takes it back to the creation of the order of creation and then how the temptation uh, fell into this world. And then when he gives the qualifications for an elder, he gives male qualifications. Uh, No, I don't think this is time bound any more than, you know, the role that women play or could play potentially as pastors. Um, So what does this mean? How are we to apply it? This is uh, linguistically one of the not buts of the Bible, not this, but that. And these not buts are not um, commands of exclusivity, but uh, commands of comparison. And there are many that are found in the word of God. Uh, For instance, uh, Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, uh, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. So he's saying not only this one thing, but also and mainly another thing. And so Jesus elsewhere, of course, calls us servants. He said that he that would be great among you must be the slave or the servant of all. He tells us that a, a slave is not greater than his master. So we are called to be servants. And so when he makes this statement in John 15, um, he's saying you're not only servants, but the main emphasis of your relationship with me is, is that of a friend. Uh, there's another example I could give. Let me turn to John chapter John chapter 6, in, in verse 27, Jesus said, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. Again, one of these not but statements, not this, but that. Well, at first glance, somebody might conclude if they're going to be consistent with women not braiding their hair, say, or wearing any kind of jewelry, that Jesus would say, well, you shouldn't work for your food. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Because the Bible tells us that we are to work for our food. Even in the um, parable that Jesus gives of the birds in telling us not to worry, um, he doesn't say that the father drops the worm in the bird's nest. No, the bird needs to go out and scratch for the worm. He needs to work for it. When Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And so this is not an exclusion against work. The Lord is just simply saying that spiritual food is more important than physical food. And as such, we are to put a higher priority on that. Uh, In the sermon, uh, well, not the sermon, but in Matthew 4, in the temptation, when he quotes um, the, uh, the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, he tells the evil one, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it's an issue of priority. So when Paul says here in first Timothy two, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with this, but with this, um, he, he wants us to understand that there's not an absolute prohibition against jewelry or 
maybe braided hair or wearing a nice dress or whatever the situation may be. It's an issue of emphasis. There is to be an emphasis on modesty. There is to be an emphasis on restraint because, of course, uh, Timothy was pastoring in the city known as Ephesus. It's a church in Turkey. And one of the things that the Ephesians were well known for were extremely elaborate hairdos. And so when even a woman walks into church today, her dress should not be so flashy and so flamboyant and so unique that, wow, who is that person with that kind of outfit on? And uh, no, you know, there, there, there needs to be some modesty. There needs to be some discreetness. There needs to be some restraint. So he's not saying you can't braid your hair, but like Peter, uh, where Peter deals with the same subject if you focus only on the outside to the exclusion of the inside of, of developing what Peter calls a, you know, a, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord, then your priorities are out of whack. And of course, God knows that because of the way he made a woman, um, a man doesn't focus on adornment. He didn't wire us that way. He, he made a woman primarily to give that kind of focus. A man might spend two minutes in front of a mirror, A woman might spend 15 minutes in front of the mirror, and that's okay. Her hair, for instance, is her glory, Paul says. Uh, But again, it's an issue of priority. And if a woman spends all of her time in developing the external and no time on the internal, developing that gentle and quiet spirit, then her priorities are uh, out of whack. And so the New American Standard when it quotes um, Peter's admonition to women, it adds a word. Uh, And that word that is added, of course, is italicized, showing that it's not a part of the original Greek text. But nonetheless, it's implied in the Greek text uh, when Peter gives an admonition to how a woman should set her priorities. And so let me just turn over there and read that for just a second. Um, He's talking about women winning their husbands who are disobedient and so forth. And then he says, and let not your adornment be merely external. The word merely is uh, added, but it is implied in the Greek New Testament. And so indeed, it's a proper word to insert. Don't let it only be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold, uh, jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now, some again put in the issue here of exclusivity. Well, you're not supposed to, you know, braid your hair. Well, are you not supposed to wear dresses? Um, No, it's an issue here of emphasis, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. Um, Your your other question that you mentioned, Dallas Seminary, it's a great school. Um, If the Lord is um, burdening you possibly to go there, then you should pursue it. You should apply. And um, don't don't be intimidated by any seminary. You just do what God wants you to do, and you put the emphasis there, and you run with it, and see what God does. And so, um, you know, a high percentage of their applicants, over half, are not accepted, uh, just because academically it's a very demanding course of study. But God may want you there, Emmanuel, and so don't hesitate to apply. Great question. Let's go to the next one. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning to you both. Yeah, thanks Um, for calling. How can we help today? Well, I thought I heard you mention in your sermon yesterday that y'all were dropping Moody as an affiliate. And I was going to ask you if you could please explain your decision and also how will it affect any programming that y'all have been carrying? 
and I'm going to hang up and, and listen to your answer. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Um, we are an affiliate of the Moody Broadcast Network. They have a few hundred stations around the country that are associated with them. What that basically means is you sign a contract with them, and, and you agree to uh, use their satellite, their speakers, their uh, some of their spots that they create, and so on and so forth. Um, and we've been associated with uh, the Moody Broadcast Network for 25 years. Uh, our decision to uh, leave uh, from the Moody Broadcast Network, a decision the radio board made, uh, was um, really started with a decision that they made that uh, their staff, uh, be it of the radio ministry or the Moody Bible Institute, um, now have freedom in moderation uh, to use alcohol to smoke or to gamble. Uh, we felt like that was a very unwise decision uh, for them to make that uh, call uh, for several reasons. Uh, one, for 100 years, they had a prohibition against any of their employees uh, using alcohol or smoking. Um, most organizations don't even address gambling because that's kind of a given it's like uh, it would be like saying, well, you know, if you want to work for Moody, you can't smoke, drink or you can't be, you know, practicing adultery. Um, it's just stupid. Um, you know, people don't even include that usually in their uh, lifestyle um, issues that they would apply to, say, leadership and a missions agency or with a seminary or a Christian school or whatever it might be. With that said, we think it's an unwise decision uh, to argue for the use of alcohol in moderation for several reasons. Number one, uh, I think God uh, puts a uh, puts some parameters on the use of alcohol. There have been some Christians who are well-meaning but not very careful with their uh, exegesis of Scripture who have argued, well, all the wine in the Bible was non-alcoholic. Well, that, that's just not true. And you don't even have to be a Greek or a Hebrew scholar to, to realize that if you just look at the Scripture and read it plainly. But there are reasons why Christians have abstained. One, it can cause a brother to stumble, and we're not to do anything. We're not to eat or drink or do anything that would cause a brother to stumble, Romans 14 would say. Um, in our day, I think certainly it has the appearance of evil. Some things are not evil, but they potentially appear evil. And God tells us to even abstain from something that appears to be evil. And so today, if uh, you think, well, I can drink in moderation and you're in a restaurant and you have a glass of wine or beer, uh, unbelievers might quickly accuse you of uh, getting high as a Christian. Why? Because that's what most people do today when they drink. Let's just face it, uh, especially this new generation that's coming up. Uh, and if you don't believe that, you're blind, and all you need to do is attend some spring break festive festivity um, in the country or walk onto a college campus. And it was true when I was a college student, I worked on college campuses for 12 years as a campus pastor. And if the problem was bad when I was working on the college campus, it's twice as bad now. Uh, it's just terrible. Uh, all across America, there are big drunkens every single weekend. Uh, attend any football game and all the, the pre, uh, pre-parties that accompany that football game. Uh, and this will all start up, in a, obviously, even this week across the nation. And you will see that there is a huge problem. So in my view, 
for a Christian to use alcohol that has the appearance of evil in our day. So you're not to cause a brother to stumble, and you can do that in several ways. One, if you think, well, I have the freedom to drink a glass of wine or a glass of beer, not to get drunk, but to have a glass of beer, and I'm going to um, do that because I'm free in Christ. And some other new brother who's saved out of an alcohol background thinks, well, Carl Brogy, he's a strong Christian, and it's okay for him to have a beer. I guess I can model him because I respect him. Uh, and he ends up modeling my lifestyle, and he can't handle one because he comes out of a lifestyle where he's abused alcohol. He may not consider himself, quote-unquote, an alcoholic, but nonetheless, uh, he may be a weekend drunk, uh, as many uh, college students are and young people and adults all across America. Uh, the third issue, not only should you not cause a brother to stumble, uh, you should abstain from all things that even have the appearance of evil. The Bible says you are to do whatever you do for the glory of God. First uh, Corinthians ten thirty one. And really, honestly, can a Christian say that he is glorifying God through using alcohol in our day? So that's one argument that people use for abstaining from alcohol. And by the way, every single person that you hear on the Moody Broadcast Network and that you hear on this station because we bring other speakers who are not on the Moody Broadcast Network. You can hear Charles Stanley. Uh, he is no longer on Moody. Um, you can hear Adrian Rogers. He's no longer on Moody. Uh, you can hear Dr. James Merritt, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas. He's never been on Moody. Um, you can hear um, the pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church, uh, Dr. Graham. Uh, he's not on Moody, never has been. Um, every single person, whether it's Tony Evans or David Jeremiah or Erwin Lutzer or whoever it might be that you listen to on this broadcast network will argue for abstinence. Now, they will get there in different ways, but they will argue for it. Um, I, I think there's another way to look at the use of alcohol where it's not so gray uh, number one, God does clearly, no one would debate this, forbid the use of alcohol where you're seeking to get drunk, but God also forbade the use of strong drink with a couple of exceptions. Uh, what is strong drink? Is it rum, whiskey, uh, the distilled alcohols that came centuries later? No, obviously they couldn't be because the first distilled liquors come almost six centuries after the New Testament is completed. So what is strong drink? Well, you have to go back and ask, well, how would the original audience understood the term strong drink? And if I can understand what it meant to the original audience, then I can make proper application for my life. Uh, Robert Stein, who was a graduate of Princeton Seminary, wrote a tremendous uh, article that appeared in Christianity Today in the um, 1970s. I think it was in 72. In fact, I, I sent a copy of that article to the president of Moody with my letter. Uh, he is now an, an older man, um, was teaching, and I think he's still an adjunct pro professor at Southern Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. But he wrote a great article called Wine Drinking in the New Testament, and he goes back and he looks at the issue of strong drink historically in the cultures of the day and how they would have understood the term strong drink. A more recent article was done by Dr. Norman Geiser, who, by the way, Moody Broadcast Network has interviewed on their network on several occasions. He's not some, you know, country bumpkin, stupid fundamentalist as they try to make people like myself who argue for abstinence to be. 
Uh, he's a great theological scholar of our day. And he wrote an excellent article in Bibliotheca Sacra. It's the oldest theological journal in the United States and continuous publications since the mid-1800s. And uh, I think it appeared in 1982. And he uh, dealt with this issue of strong drink. It's done on a scholarly level. I reminded them in my letter that uh, many of the professors that they have at Moody, trained under men like Dr. John Walford, the once president of Dallas Theological Seminary, now in heaven. Men like Dr. Dwight Pentecost, who all advocated uh, Christians abstaining from alcohol on the basis of it being strong drink. And so typically, if you lived in the first century, because the water was often impure and you could easily get sick, you had to go through a process to make your water safe to drink. You either boiled it or you squirted some wine in it. Uh, when you met missionaries in the 19th century, they would often carry a wine satchel around their neck and they would squeeze wine into water wherever they went because the alcohol, the small amount that they would squeeze in would not make them drunk, but it would kill the bacteria in the water and typically make it safe to drink. And so as you read some of the literature of the Jewish people uh, not wanting to be guilty of violating God's prohibition to use strong drink, uh, the rabbi said that you mixed it in a ratio of five to one. So you had five parts water and one part wine. The Didash, which is a second century A.D. pastoral manual that has survived to our day, um, Christians wanting to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And again, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have the preservation techniques that we have in our day. And so the fruit of the vine, wine, as it was called, and again, context is everything in the Bible. Sometimes wine can refer to unfermented drink, but clearly it does not always. And the word yayin in the Hebrew or oinos in the Greek can mean either in the context determines which they are referring to. Clearly, when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, he's not talking about non-fermented oinos. He's talking about real wine that can make you drunk. Nonetheless, um, they would mix it in a five-to-one ratio because at the Lord's Supper, they didn't want to be guilty of using strong drink. And there were times during the year when fresh grapefruit juice was not available. And so they they mixed it in a five-to-one ratio. You cannot argue that in the truest sense, the Bible teaches abstinence because it does not. And I've never taught that. Uh, But if you were to mix your water in a five-to-one ratio, something that is really unnecessary for the most part today, then you would not be guilty of using strong drink. Uh, In addition, God argued that you could use wine, uh, as in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that Good Samaritan who came along and he poured wine on the man's wounds. Why? Because it killed the bacteria. And uh, and then he poured oil, which acted like a Band-Aid to uh, to protect uh, the man from getting his cuts dirty and any potential infection that could follow. So God's word is very clear on this issue. And if you just think of it logically, let's think of it logically for just a second. Someone says today, well, I can have a glass of wine and not get high on it. Um, Okay, well, let me ask you a question. The first time you had that six ounce glass of wine, 
Did you get a buzz? Did you get, well, yeah, I did. But, you know, I've developed pastor over the years, a resistance in my system. So now I can have a glass of wine. It doesn't affect me. What's the greatest commandment that Jesus quoted? He said, the greatest of all the commandments was to love the Lord, your God, with your whole heart, mind, and soul. You tell me when you have a buzz, are you loving God with all of your mind? No, you're not. You have a high. And you are, in essence, violating the greatest of all the commandments that God gave to us. And so God doesn't want you to sin for a period of time until you build up this resistance where you can handle a beer. Not to mention there are, you know, other factors with this whole issue of alcohol that I think, again, it's very foolish. Why did Moody want to do this? Well, they wanted to do it because they felt like they could not attract the kind of scholarship they needed to the Moody Bible Institute because of this newer generation that is coming up. The older generation is all dying off. The Dwight Pentecost, who died six weeks ago, and the Howard Hendricks, who died four months ago, and the, the Dr. Walvords, who died you know, four years ago, they're, they're all passing on to heaven. And so you have this new generation that are, quote unquote, enlightened, and they see things that no one else has seen in a few thousand years of church history, and they think it's okay to drink. They think it's okay to smoke. Well, you know, there is a movement in our country that, you know, under the banner of freedom in Christ, you know, advocate this. So, you know, R.C. Sproul, for instance, who, you know, I, I think he's a fine man. He's Christian. He loves the Lord. And I don't agree with a lot of his theology. I think it's hyper-Calvinistic and he has a low view of Israel, but I love him as a brother in Christ. But, you know, he, he's argued for smoking in moderation. Now he can't leave his home. Uh, he's very limited in terms, I shouldn't say he can't leave his home. He can't leave and travel for the most part. Why? Because he's got problems with his lungs because he smoked in moderation. Uh, it's very foolish, very, very, very foolish. But this enlightened generation think it's okay to smoke. It's okay to drink. And then to gamble, um, you know, what was driving that in Moody Bible Institute's decision? Well, my guess is, is that one of the board members who um, co-authored a series, uh, the Left Behind series, um, Jerry Jenkins, uh, and by the way, the man that he co-authored it with, Tim LaHaye, is totally against smoking, totally against drinking, totally against gambling. But, you know, uh, Jerry Jenkins made millions and millions of dollars. Um, in the process, he kind of, you know, adopted recreational gambling. So when he was caught, so to speak, in interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, you can read the article online, where he lost eight grand in Vegas, he basically said, that's chump change. That, that's just play money for me. Well, listen, I, you know, I got a prayer request on my desk this morning from a single mother with four children uh, whose husband no longer has a job, who's you know, left her and pays no child support. That's not chump change for her. And there's a stewardship issue. And that money could have been used far more wisely for the kingdom of God. But when you get a big donor who's giving millions of dollars to Moody, then maybe you adapt your policy so you don't make your donor mad. So what they did is very foolish for a number of reasons. Number one, they're going to attract the wrong kind of leadership that they need at Moody. Uh, Wheaton College made the same kind of decision about a decade ago, and it's been downhill all the way. The kind of people they are bringing on have a liberal slant to theology, 
And it's just a matter of time before that organization will be totally apostate. And I'm meeting people now who are graduating from Wheaton that I am not impressed with. And I think, what did they teach you there? It's not healthy. Um, And so if you're going to wear the banner of a Christian school, let's let it be thoroughly evangelical and represent historic Christianity. So I think Moody has stepped in the wrong direction, not to mention they exist as a school primarily to build leadership in the body of Christ. It doesn't cost tuition-wise to attend Moody. The only thing you pay for is room and board. And so they're very selective. If you feel called to come to Moody, then you need to principally feel called into full-time ministry. Uh, The church that I pastor, we have 280-some missionaries around the world that we support. And I don't know of a single missionary that we support that is with a mission agency that advocates the use of alcohol or tobacco. So when they apply to uh, Sudan Interior Mission, when they apply to Wycliffe Bible Translators, when they apply to uh, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, when they apply to Pioneer or Send or any of these mission agencies, they are going to agree that they abstain from the use of alcohol and tobacco. Uh, When they even go to a number of churches, though this is changing, unfortunately, uh, they're going to be asked to abstain from the use of alcohol and tobacco. Again, gambling is not even an issue. Um, So Moody made a very foolish decision. How will it affect our broadcasting? Very little. Um, Now, let me just say, again, they're sending mixed messages. Erwin Lutzer, who's the pastor of Moody Church, who's not, that's an independent, autonomous ministry. So he's not connected to this decision. So understand that. And uh, don't misquote me on it. Uh, but Erwin Lutzer, just a couple of months ago, I was driving home one night and, you know, they occasionally take questions that people write in to him about. And they said, Dr. Lutzer, what do you think about a Christian using alcohol? And he said, it's very foolish. And so they're sending a mixed message between their broadcasters, those that they promote on Moody and the new policy that they have had. Um, And so, again, I think it's very unfortunate, but it won't change our broadcasting because any of the people you listen on Moody, they're not exclusive to Moody. Alistair Begg, who argues for abstinence, is not exclusive to Moody. Chuck Swindoll is not. You can get these people through various satellites. There are some programs that are exclusive to Moody. Uh, Some of the things like music through the night, which has now been changed and revamped. And, you know, we can put other things in there. There will be some spots occasionally that are uniquely out of the mother station in Chicago, and you won't hear those anymore. But you will hear all the same broadcasters uh, that you have traditionally heard here on the Moody Broadcast Network. Maybe I should put my letter that I wrote to the president online so people can read it for the future. And Rick wrote a great letter, too, to one of our um, sponsors who had asked um, about Moody's decision. So there it is in a nutshell. If someone asks you, tell them to go to the Bible line for this day. Let's go to the next question. Well, can I add one more thing Please. in regards yeah, to this? Yeah. Uh, you know, as general manager and having been on staff for a number of years here, um, my position has always been I felt that almost uh, something along the lines of a Nazarite vow. When you come on staff in a ministry position, uh, you need to be held to a higher standard, and, and in particular, when you're a teacher, a faculty member, and you have young students who are looking to you as an example, and uh, you're in a seminary situation, uh, and you're sitting there at the, uh, you know, the 
cafe or whatever, having having a beer with some friends, and one of your students comes in and they see you, you know, a little maybe high or loose or whatever. Well, two things happen. First, they're going to say, okay, well, then if it's okay for prof to do it, then it's okay for me to do it. Right. And secondly, though, but as they're going uh, forward in their ministry plans, it's just going to be a slippery slope for them. It is. It is, Rick. And so um, I was very disappointed over the entire decision by Moody. Uh, But as you said, um, and, and people may not really be aware of this, we have actually over the last few months been gradually uh, diminishing our connection with Moody. So uh, you haven't even been aware of it. Everything has been the same because, as uh, you indicated, all of this programming is um, is available. And really the only concern I had was how are we going to replace the music, uh, particularly our music through the night, which Mike Kellogg did a terrific job. But uh, quite honestly, I've been listening to the, the new Kurt Goff Live Overnight series, and I'm very disappointed in the quality of that. And uh, Mike Kellogg, you should say, has retired, and yes. so he's no longer producing that show. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. He retired uh, back at the uh, beginning of June, and they've got Kurt Goff Live uh, now, and it's, it's nothing but uh, a bunch of call-ins with uh, loose theology and I'm actually looking forward to getting that change. And let me just say parenthetically here, um, you know, people have asked me, well, can you be a member of Community Bible Church and drink? Yes. Yes, you can. In fact, again, we grow largely by conversion. And so in a given year, typically 60% plus of the people who join come by conversion. And most people who are saved and newly won to Christ, they drink. That's the culture we live in. Can you get drunk and be a member in good standing? No. Can you be in leadership of Community Bible Church and drink? No. Do you want your son, your daughter to go to a youth group where the youth pastor drinks wine or beer? He says, I do it in moderation, but he does it nonetheless. Do you want that kind of person teaching your teenager? Do you want that kind of person leading an adult Bible fellowship with new Christians? I hope not. And so for leadership positions, whether they're deacons or elders or Sunday school teachers or Awana leaders, we have some standards. Uh, and, we, 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 and we don't make apology for that. But I also teach people to the standard. We have a discipleship class that's 45 weeks long. And this is one of the issues we help the new believer to work through and to think through and why this is indeed an important issue for them to contemplate. But we live in a day of gross abuse. Listen, I don't want to give 10 cents to the Anweiser Bush Company. They're ruining young Americans. They will go to these, um, you know, these parties uh, in Daytona Beach and all the places where kids go to spring drink break and they'll provide free beer, many of them, and make it so that the kids can't even stand up. There is sexual promiscuity of the worst kind taking place right on the beach. It's an evil organization. And you want to help support them by buying a beer? From Anweiser Bush or the, you know, I was glad to see a lot of the wine bottles break out there in Napa. Didn't bother me a bit. I hope it crushes the economy. Um, they're doing a wicked thing. Woe to you who makes your neighbor drunk, God says. Woe to you. Um, but we live in a day of gross compromise and lukewarmness. And if you have any standards, you're legalistic. Uh, you're rigid, you're this, you're that. When God hasn't called us to see how close we can get to sin, 
but he's called us to see how far away we can get from sin, and that should be our mindset. Mm. Let's go. I'm off of this pulpit. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. How can we help today? Well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned that because I thought the same thing about uh, Napa, about the wine bottles breaking. Uh, Years ago, uh, at a church that I attended, we had a guest speaker come and speak, and his name was Rick Stanley. He was uh, Elvis Presley's stepbrother. He wrote a book called Living with Two Kings. And one of the during his message, he mentioned that he had a friend in Canada and said that his father was the pastor of the largest church in Canada, some, I guess, majestic church, some beautiful church. And he said when his friend introduced him to his father, he said, Dad, this is Elvis's brother. He said, Elvis who? And he said he was just shocked, but also amazed at the fact that he wasn't up on culture, that he you know, didn't know who he was. I mentioned that to someone a few years back, and they said, well, you know, you don't want to be so heavily minded that you're no earthly good. But then I heard another pastor who said, you can never be too heavily minded. So I wanted to know what your take is on that and how you would uh, kind of compare that along with the book of John where it says, uh, be in the world and not of it. Well, that principle is taught. Uh, the Bible nowhere says be in the world and not of it, but that principle is taught. That's a verse that's often quoted as a verse, but that principle is plainly taught. And uh, God tells us not to love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is uh, it's not from the Father. It's, it's from the world system that we live in. It's from... Uh, the prince of the power of the air who's crafting the age in which we find ourselves. And and God says that's all passing away. It's all temporal. So we need to keep perspective. Um, As pastors, as Christians, we live between two worlds. uh, And we preach as preachers between two worlds. So there is a a part that we, we can't be totally oblivious to the world that we live in. Uh, we need to um, relate to the world that we're in so we can address the issues of our day. Uh, so I can't be ignorant of abortion if I don't know that abortions take place. I'm using kind of an extreme example, but I think it makes the point. Uh, I need to know the cultural, moral issues of our day so that I can address them. That does not mean that I have to soak my mind in filth to be able to do that. God says, I'll have you to be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so there is to be a part of us where we may not be on the top side of all of the pop culture. But if we know what the truth is, then we ought to be able to respond to the pop culture. Well, what does that guy stand for? Well, let me tell you what God says about that guy. It's just like with dealing in the cults. I don't have to research every single cult in order to be able to respond um, to their error. But if I know the truth extremely well, I can hear the error in their teaching and say, well, this is what God says. And here's where they're out of sync. And we can do the same with the pop pop culture that we live in. That's not to say that we should be ignorant of all that's going on, because these are real issues that people are dealing with. 
And so there was a vampire series that came out a few years ago, and a lot of our young people were watching it. Uh, Harry Potter, when he stepped on the scene, parents said, well, my kids never read books before. Now they're reading a book. That must be a good thing. Not necessarily. What are they filling their minds with? And so as Christians, we need to know how to address these issues. And when you say, well, this person is in the demonic witchcraft realm, is that something we want our kids to soak their minds in? Obviously not. Uh, so we live between two worlds, this world and uh, in the world to come. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And you can also email us at tbl at net. Our next caller dictated their question. Uh, they would like to know, what are reliable sources of biblical teaching? For example, do you know if Calvary Chapel, the Calvary Satellite Network, or Trinity Broadcasting Network are reliable sources? Well, the Calvary Chapels started by Chuck Smith, who in the last year went home to be with the Lord in his 80s, a great, great man of God. Uh, Their churches are different. So some Calvary Chapels are stronger than others. Some are more charismatic slash Pentecostal in some of their doctrinal positions than others. Um, And so it's like any denomination, though they are a non-denominational movement, but like any denomination, you have to look at each one individually. It used to be if you went into a Southern Baptist church anywhere in the country, you knew what you were getting. Well, not anymore. So you have to look at each and every one individually uh, to make sure you know what you are about. Um, So there are some good people in the Calvary Chapel movement some that are really strong, some I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but they're brothers in Christ. TBN, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag, for instance. Trinity Broadcast Network, one, one hour you'll have Ed Heinsen on there from Liberty University and uh, does a great job, solid, theologically uh, accurate to the Word of God. The next guy, next time you got some wacko on there. And I think, where, are, where did they find these people? I mean, these guys aren't even close, some of them, to the Word of God. And so that's why we need to be discerning in our day, because there is a lack of discernment. And discernment comes from two things. One, a knowledge of Scripture, and secondly, an application of that knowledge. People who have gymnasticized or trained, it's the Greek word gymnasium, we get our word gymnasium from it, who have trained their senses to discern good and evil. So it's not just knowledge, but the application of knowledge that gives us discernment. And many Christians lack that today because they don't know the truth. They no longer know really what the Bible says because they're sitting in churches that no longer open it up and expound it. And so um, the, the exegetical verse-by-verse sermon of our day has become a white elephant. And so uh, pastors are, are guilty of, you know, narcissists. Um, it's their narcissistic sermons that are man-centered, and they're not God-centered. And, um, and so people lack the discernment they need. All yeah. right, let's go to the— You had uh, used that term this past Sunday. Never heard it before. And well, uh, I looked it up, and that is a new term that a lot of evangelical teachers are, are using. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Brogy, last uh, couple weeks ago, uh, you got a call from an individual who wanted to know if you had read the book, uh, The Boy Who Met Jesus, and if so, what your thoughts about it were, and uh, you had not, but uh, since then you've kind of looked over the synopsis of it. 
Well, there was another person they mentioned. It was an African guy, Segatashi Kabeho, that I had never read. That's it. But I I knew of the other book, um, you know, The Boy Who Met Jesus. It's much like that book, um, 90 Minutes in Heaven by not John Piper, but Don Piper. Don't mix the two guys up. Um, And... Again, the theme is the same. You know, people have this experience, and because they've had this experience, it's authenticate. It's authenticative. And um, the guy who supposedly spends 90 minutes in heaven, uh, it's just ridiculous, some of the things that he comes up with. Um, and when, when his uh, book came out, uh, I got a copy of it because Zonervin or a division of Zonervin, Thomas Nelson, sent it to me. They sent it to pastors all across the country. They not only sent me the book, they sent me all these little pamphlets and promotional things and this whole packet. And, and so I skimmed the book and I thought, oh, this is pathetic. I mean, where, where is Zonervin? Zonervin is no longer a trusted press. Uh, they used to be. But they no longer are because they will put out there that which sells and makes them money, not necessarily that which is theologically accurate. And so 90 Minutes in Heaven just has a lot of folklore about heaven. And so he, he talks about, if I remember correctly, standing outside of the pearly gates and people who are on the outside. Well, number one, there's not a set of pearly gates. In the New Jerusalem, there are 12 sets of gates, and people won't go in and out of those gates until the end of the age when God has already completed the great white throne judgment. He's created a new heaven and a new earth, and the New Jerusalem literally, physically, actually descends from heaven and sits on the new earth. And that's when those gates are going to be used. Um, and so, you know, just a lot of distorted views of, you know, what is it really like when you die and you, you go to heaven. And so I remember in that book, when people die, um, everyone's the same age that they were when they died. Okay. Well, is that true? I don't know. The Bible's silent on that. In fact, if I were to give a theological uh, guess, I would guess against it. Why? Well, for instance, let's say an infant dies at three months. Are you going to meet that baby as an infant in heaven? I don't think so, because everyone in the Revelation who's in heaven is singing praise consciously to the Lord, something that an infant can't do when he's only two or three months or eight weeks into the womb when a woman loses her baby through miscarriage or, in some cases, even abortion. So if anything, the Bible would argue against that. But he has a lot of, you know, folklore that he's adopted into his vision. So how do I understand this guy, Don Piper? Well, he's either lying and he wrote a book for personal gain or he imagined the thing. And it's probably I'd like to believe more the latter because I don't want to accuse him of lying. Now, remember, the Bible says it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And so the whole vision is predicated on this out-of-body experience. And I don't think that that's normative. You know, people tell me, well, I died and I went to heaven. You didn't die and go to heaven. Um, Now, there may be some unique exceptions, like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, who... He doesn't say he died, but he does say that he was either literally transported into heaven 
or the vi- or he just had a vision. In either case, the vision was so real, he could say, maybe I was literally transported there, but he didn't die and go there. And even Paul's vision of heaven, he never elaborates on it because he said God gave him some kind of physical ailment that he would never brag about it. It was such a marvelous, wonderful place. So what we should believe about heaven is what we should believe in terms of what we find in the Bible, in the word of God, and we should stop there. And then this little boy, you know, who who's four-year-old, you know, he, he dies and, you know, he tells his dad all about that he saw, you know, he saw his miscarried sister and he saw his grandfather who died 30 years in advance. Well, did he? Did this little kid really see that? What if, what if, let's just ask this, is it possible that he imagined that because of the loss of oxygen? Could it possibly be that the evil one himself gave him a vision? Um, You know, Muslims, you've got these people, Muslims who die and they come back and they said, yeah, I met my 72 virgins. You know, come on, please. You know, we've put experience over the authority of the word of God. But that caller last week who mentioned this African guy, Segatasha uh, Kabiho, I'm not sure I'm saying his name correctly, but, you know, he, um, there's no credibility there. You know, he has this apparition of the Virgin Mary and the Lord Jesus, and that's good Catholic theology, but that's not biblical theology. And even more recently, this neurosurgeon who trained at Duke, and he's involved with the Harvard Medical School, uh, even Alexander, who, you know, he's died, and he's had this vision of heaven, and he said, oh, now I know heaven is real. I've had this vision. He writes about it. What denomination is he with? He's a Mormon. He's a Mormon. Please, Mormons are not Christians. Where do you think he got that vision if he had a vision? He did one of two things. He either said, there's so many naive people out there, and I want to increase my income, so I'm going to write a book that will sell like hotcakes, and it has, especially because of his medical credentials and because he's considered an intelligent man. Or two, you know, the devil gave it to him to further promote Mormonism, a false religion that is leading people straight to hell. Um, But our final authority is not experience. Our final authority is the word of God. Experience needs to be put in subjection to the authority of Scripture, not over it. Hmm. You know, there are two models. There's uh, Paul and there's John on the island of Patmos. and. Uh, Paul ends up with a thorn in the flesh, and uh, you know the other one's stuck on an island. I don't want either of those. And, uh, <laughs> okay, so yeah, all right. We've got a live caller who'd like to uh, give a little word of testimony. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick, and good morning, Pastor Carl. This is Joanna, and I would like to give a testimony of something that happened to me last week. I had been uh, signed over the title to a car two years ago, and subsequent to that, I had come down with cancer, had to go through chemotherapy, and I moved twice. So all of my belongings were all put in boxes, and everything was all mixed up, and I couldn't focus or concentrate, and it was hard for me to do anything. So when I went to get um, the new tag for my car, they said, well, you have to have the title. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to just look through all those boxes and find it. So I started looking, and I couldn't find it, so I gave up, and I looked again, couldn't find it, and gave it up. So a whole year had gone by, and I just gave up because I couldn't find it. Well, one Saturday, I devoted 
to looking just for the title to this car because they were not going to give me a new decal and I would be in trouble with um, not obeying the law and, and paying my taxes and everything on the car. So that Saturday night, I said, Lord, you always show me where everything is that I need when I ask you, and, I, and I've been negligent in asking you, Lord, please show me where that title is to that car. And when I got up Sunday morning, I went down the hallway where I had a lot of things stacked up that I was going to um, arrange in my new home. And in between a beautiful picture uh, that said Amazing Grace and a plaque that had the Ten Commandments on it, I pushed it apart, and there inside was this little piece of paper, which was the title to my car. Isn't God good, Rick, how, yes. how, how he yes. orchestrates circumstances and answers prayer? You know, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. And Joanna asked, and there God answered her prayer. God is so good. Well, let's go to the next question. Good comment. Thank you for that testimony. All right. Uh, Calvin writes, uh, recently a new couple moved into our small town, and we were considering inviting them over for dinner, but found out they are Mormons. Uh, They are not coming to our home to teach us at our door, so should we have them over to share Christ or to speak them Uh, to them in another setting. Well, I wouldn't be opposed to having them to my home. You know, there are people who are in cults for one of two reasons. Either A, the cult was the first to reach them, and that's all they've ever known. They grew up Mormon, their parents were Mormon, their grandparents were Mormon, so they became Mormon. And they've not necessarily even thought through the issues. And sometimes, you know, God brings those people into the path of a Bible-believing Christian because God wishes that none should perish. God doesn't hate Mormons. God loves Mormons, as, as I do. And God wants to save them. Um, my only caution to people is letting, uh, you know, the, the prohibition of letting someone in your door was to show hospitality and in essence uh, underwrite their ministry financially because that's how people, when they traveled as teachers, be they true teachers or false teachers, were their needs were taken care of. But nonetheless, you need to be careful if someone is not sound in their own theology of uh, letting those people in. So if someone's a new Christian, I'd say, probably not. Why don't you leave the the winning of that Mormon to someone else and say, well, you know, I have my pastor and you can talk to him and, you know, but be, be careful there. But these people need to be loved into the kingdom like other folks as well. And uh, their, their motive may not be even to win you to Mormonism. There's so many nominal Mormons in our day who, well, I'm Mormon. Why are you Mormon? Because well, I'm Mormon. That's the way I was raised. And they're not necessarily deeply committed to that system of thought and may be very open to the truth. So um, that's how I would briefly respond. Well, another hour has gone by. A lot of questions came in that we did not get to. But God's grace, if he withholds the rapture another week, well, we'll be back again, Lord willing, before too long. And uh, we'll open the word of God again. If you have a question, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. Click on Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. I get so many. I type some of the answers, many of them I can't even begin to respond to because I just don't have enough hours in the day. And so Rick brings them to me here and we answer them one at a time. So however we can be of help to you, if you're in the 
uh, Beaufort, South Carolina area, and you're looking for a church home, would love to invite you to Community Bible Church meeting at the Bridge Center next to the restaurant, uh, Mexican restaurant on um, Bluffton, right before the Hilton Head Bridge, or here at 638 Paris Island Gateway in Beaufort. Have a great day. Thank you.